Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It remains May the 4th, 2022. It's been a long day. First thing this morning, I actually interviewed uh, another author, Alice Sherwood. She has a new book out, Authenticity, Reclaiming Reality in a Counterfeit Culture. And I suspect that we're going to be talking about authenticity with my guest today, uh, another author, uh, Danica Rome, um, is an American journalist. and uh, an elected politician to the Virginia House of Delegates. Um, She's serving the the Virginia 13th District for a couple of terms. Um, And um, she, I I think, and I want to talk to her about this, she uh, is a champion of authenticity in politics. She has a new book out, a book about her own life and career, Burn the Page, a true story of torching doubts, blazing trails, and igniting change. And I'm thrilled and honored that Danica is joining us from Seattle. Uh, Danica, am I putting you in a box, calling you authentic? Is that a word you like, the A word? Well, so in a trans world, we tend to uh, refer to your authentic sense of self. And I would certainly say that you know, encouraging people to be who they are, to be that well and be able to thrive because of who you are, not despite it, is definitely my wheelhouse. What does the word, though, mean? Being true to yourself. Um, uh, There was another headline I found about you about reclaiming your own story. Is that being true to yourself, both in your new memoir, Burn the Page, and in your life and indeed in your politics? Uh, so the answer to all, is yes to all of the above. And, you know, for someone like me who spent the better part of three decades having to either tell some people I was one person and other people I was another person, you know, while at the same time knowing from the time I was 10 years old exactly who I was, it's mentally exhausting. And I write a lot in Burn the Page about what it's like having to, you know, live that double life in a way versus how much more relaxing it is and basically the removal of the burden of having to live with the constant secret of, oh, I'm not going to come out to some people because it's not safe. I'm not going to come out to other people because I don't want to disappoint them. I'm not going to come out to certain people because they might be awful or hurt me. Instead, now I'm just who I am every day to the, you know, doesn't matter who I'm around. And, you know, you don't even have to be trans to be related to that story. I think you can see a lot of that for just anyone who wants to be able to live their truth and to do it as they are instead of who other people tell them they're supposed to be. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I found another headline, uh, Danica, uh, from the Daily Beast when you were first elected to the House, the, the, the Virginia House of Delegates in 2017, suggesting that you made trans political history. Is that the kind of headline that you like? Do you like to think of yourself as a a, a, a politician focused on trans issues, or is that just a an accidental part of your identity? 
Well, look, so it, it is my identity. It's who I am in terms of being a trans woman. At the same time, I ran for office to fix Route 28, I, which we're now doing, which is under construction and based on a vote that I cast on as a member of the Northern Virginia Transportation Authority. It is who I am for constituent service, for, you know, expanding, uh, you know, Medicaid expansion, for example, where we got that done. That was a campaign promise I kept from 2017. And now because of that, we've now enrolled 654 thousand Virginians in quality affordable health insurance, including more than 3,000, or actually more than 5,500 of my constituents and more than 30,000 residents of Greater Prince William, which includes Prince William County, City of Manassas, City of Manassas Park, uh, you know, all in Northern Virginia. And so, you know, in short, I ran for office to take care of the very core tangible issues that my constituents deal with. And since I've been in office, we've now passed 32 of my bills into law, including 10 to feed hungry kids. And when you read burn the page you'll see you know the what made that possible in a lot of ways and a big part of making that possible is understanding it's like yeah i own my identity and equality is very much part of my platform and at the same time i know how to get along with other people how to work together across party lines while at the same time being true to my values yeah i was looking at your political website and trans comes up a couple of times in terms of issues but it's about transportation and transparency so you're clearly a, your engagement in politics and your own personal identity, they're connected and they run in parallel, but clearly your politics goes beyond your own self. Is that fair? Well, it has to. I represent a wildly diverse district where we have 101,000 people and really people from all around the world who now live in Western Prince William County and City Manassas Park and call it home. You know, I have people who... You know, just, you know, just because they are new to the district or people who've been there for a long time, they want to be themselves too. And you know what ties everyone together there? Terrible commutes. This is why I fought really hard. And in my first year in office, got the funding we needed to launch the first commuter bus linking northern uh, Gainesville and Haymarket to five metro stations out in Arlington each day. And why, you know, I voted for the administrative infrastructure that we're going to need to, you know, include night and weekend service on the VRE Manassas line. And so, like, these are just very basic core quality of life issues that, you know, people don't care who what the gender of the person is who has the best idea to fix their commutes. They just want it done. And at the same time, you know, on election night in 2017, when I was given the chance to attack my predecessor, who was the self-described chief homophobe of Virginia, I said, I'm not in the business of attacking my constituents. And on January 10th, Delegate Marshall will be one of my constituents. And since then, that day in 2018, where I was sworn in, you know, I've really made constituent service an absolute priority where I welcome people to the table because of who they are, not despite it, not for what discriminatory politicians tell them they're supposed to be. You mentioned Manassas, um, which is where you were born, which... Uh, I'm a lifer, yeah. You're a lifer. Uh, congratulations, mm -hmm. Danica. Do you think that the... You, you're, of course, a Democrat, and I'm not sure whether you consider yourself on the left of the Democratic Party. I'm not even sure if you consider that term meaningful. But do you think that the, the liberal elites on the coasts, in my town, San Francisco, in Washington, D.C., and New York, do you think they've lost sight of small towns like Manassas, Wash, uh, Virginia? I think that's kind of, uh, I don't, I don't agree with the premise of the question. I think that if you have, you think like Manassas, you know, the city itself has got about 50,000 people in it. I live in the Prince William County unincorporated part of Manassas directly next door. Um, but at the same time, 
like people from San Francisco or who live in San Francisco, live in Washington. A lot of those folks came from all around the world as well. And so maybe some of them did come from small towns. Maybe some of them got there from different ways. It's not for me to, you know, pass judgment or prejudice towards someone just because they live in a metropolitan area at the same time in DC. I can tell you thousands of my constituents every day, you know, either get on Fury or take their cars in 66 or uh, 395, however they get into the city or near the city to work. And then they come home each day. And, you know, in the DMV area, which is the District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia, because we are so interconnected, I don't really think you could be in D.C. and look at Manassas and say like, oh, hey, that's so far away. I can't possibly imagine life there. It's like, no, it's it's on the VRE line. Just come on out whenever you want. Subtitle of your book, Dan Itzer, is uh, Torching Doubts, Blazing Trails and Igniting Change. What? doubts have you torched in your narrative and in your life? What really stands out? Sure. Well, number one is how could someone like me be able to succeed in journalism and on stage, my metal band and politics? Because look, you know, you don't have too many transgender metalhead reporter, Yogini stepmom vegetarians running for office in the first place, let alone when they're unemployed, uninsured and driving a 92 Dodge Shadow when they kick off their campaign. And I you know, was able to demonstrate that, you know, if you have good quality conversations with people at the doors, you really understand public policy issues, which I did from nine years, two months and two weeks of covering my lifelong home community as a newspaper reporter for the Gainesville and Prince William Times when I authored more than 2,500 news stories about the you know, 13th district and you know, the greater Prince William area. You know, I was able to demonstrate that, hey, I can succeed because of who I am, not despite it, like I was saying before. And I really hope that other people can latch on to that message and, you know, really set fire to the stories they don't want to be in anymore, to be able to own their narratives, tell, tell their stories and, you know, live their authentic sense of self, too. You mentioned a couple of times that your background is as a journalist. I wrote something recently on why Twitter and Musk deserve each other. Uh, there's clearly a crisis in journalism and online information in America today. Are you concerned with that? And, and how do we fix it? Or perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps I'm exaggerating, over-dramatizing it. Subscribe to your local newspaper. That's the first thing that you can do. And then actually read that physical hard copy of the newspaper every day, because that's information that's actually gone through an editorial process where it's vetted facts from people who are neutral, dispassionate, third-party observers who actually have a sense of journalistic mission in the first place, instead of trying to just push a political agenda on you or trying to tell you things in 140, 280 character sound bites at a time. You can actually have legit news, you know, given to you. It's almost like you, uh, you know, downloaded it and printed it without having to do it yourself. That's and how, how would you respond to people who say, "Well, we don't disagree, but we don't have a local newspaper anymore. It went out of business. How are well, we going to save local journalism?" Well, that's the thing. First off, subscribe to the for the people who do have papers, go and subscribe to them, go actually support your local newspapers. And even if you are upset at the editorial coverage, even if you don't like that page, the rest of the news on it on the front page and the rest is still important. It's still important to be around. And that paper is finite, cannot be hacked. It can't be changed after the fact. When it is printed, it is done, which means that you can actually see it and it's going to be the same tomorrow as it was the day before without it being edited and i think that's also really important as well well we look at the front page of the new york times at least online i guess it could be changed but it's pretty much set it's dominated on may 4th as 
Danitzi, you know better than I do, with the issue of abortion rights and the potential overturning of, of, the, of Roe versus Wade. What's going on in America? You have an interesting perch in Virginia. What do you make of this latest round in the culture wars and this attack on abortion rights? Well, the latest thing that I make out of this is that we need people where if you're upset with what's going on with the Supreme Court right now, then we need people to run for office. And through my work as the executive director of Emerge Virginia, my job is to recruit and train Democratic women to run for office. And we've got Emerge affiliates in several states throughout the country right now. So if you visit the Emerge America website and you're a Democratic woman, hey, step up. We need you to run for office and we need your values you know, at the table because when we're not at the table, we're on the menu, right? Right? And if you look at, you know, the potential majority for this decision that is overwhelmingly, you know, Republican male dominated and one woman being a part of it, well, you know, it's this is clear as day that if we are at the table, if we are winning elections and we are the ones who are making decisions, then we're going to be the inclusive leaders who we actually need to protect our civil rights, our privacy rights and our reproductive rights in general. And as a trans woman, my entire transition is dependent on reproductive freedom, which is why I support for everyone else, of course. So, you know, and I talk a little bit, you know, and go into some issues in the book about that exact idea. But what I would also say is that when I was writing this book, I didn't want it to just be about policy stuff. I didn't want it to just be like, you know, a really annoying 320 you know, page, you know, just deep dive on something that you're never going to finish. I tried to make it a really human story, try to make it really funny as well, tell a lot of, you know, just like ridiculous you know, stories from being overseas and stuff. And kind of give you that swath of, you know, what American life is like as well, you know, just to get back to your question about what's going on in America. Well, some of it is, yeah, it's really hard for a lot of people. And some of it's just plain up God awful. And then another very significant part of it is look at the people who are stepping up to make a difference. We can win. We can actually change things. It's how we did in 2017 when we flipped 15 seats red to blue in the Virginia House of Delegates with the most diverse class of elected officials we have ever had in the 403 year history of the Virginia General Assembly, where 11 of our seats who that we flipped were from women, for example. And right now, as I speak, for the first time in the history of the Virginia House of Delegates, one of the two major uh, caucuses actually has a majority of women, which is the House Democratic Caucus. We have 25 women and 23 men, and it shouldn't have taken four centuries to, for that to happen where Virginia has, you know, more than 50% women, but at the same time, it's where we are now. So, you know, let's keep going. Let's get more Democratic women elected. Dennis, I spent last week in Europe with George Packer, the Atlantic writer, as an interesting new book out, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. He suggests that America is split into four pieces, four pieces which isn't able, which aren't able to speak to one another, who don't even share the same language. Are you concerned with that? Are you concerned with the breakdown of any kind of civil discourse? You know who your people are. They know who you are. In your experience um, in, in Virginia, in Manassas, are you able to forge conversations with people who don't necessarily share your values or your politics? Yes, I have to. And the fact that all 32 of my bills that have been signed to law that have earned bipartisan support, including nine this year with a Republican-led House of Delegates, a Democratic-led state Senate, and a Republican governor, 
the fact that my nine bills that got onto the governor's desk were all signed without amendments, no vetoes or anything, it goes to show that, yes, that is absolutely possible. And at the same time, you know, we did see really, you know, just hardcore partisanship take over this year as well. And I think that, yes, we can still very much find common ground and we can do the work of reaching out to the other side, but it's got to be in good faith and it's got to be reciprocal, right? And so a lot of that takes just those personal conversations and building your reputation that you're a workhorse as opposed to a show pony. How do you do that? You make it sound and it's a very easy, but it isn't, of course. Um, I had a young journalist, uh, Monica Guzman, actually based in Seattle. I know you're talking to me from Seattle on having these fearlessly curious conversations across political boundaries. She has a new book out. I never thought of it that way. It's not an easy thing to do. Is it about trust? Is it about respect? Is it about openness? Uh, yes, to all three. And I think part of that is like, look, you know, I was raised by a mother who hasn't voted for a Democrat for president since 1976. And quote, that was a mistake, as she put it. OK, so, you know, my mom and I, we agree on like three issues of public policy, you know, so and I, I talked about this on the House floor, actually, once in a speech uh, where, you know, she her and I agree that if you work 40 hours a week, you work full time, you should be able to afford to take care of yourself. And, you know, for me, it's $15 an hour for her. It's 10, whatever, you know, at least we get the the basic concept, you know, to, you know, together. Number two, Scottish independence. No one ever sees that one coming. And number three is ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. And, you know, I was really proud in uh, 2020 to have voted and to have been the unofficial whip to line up the votes for uh, the Equal Rights Amendment when we actually got it done in the Virginia House of Delegates. And now we're really just waiting on that federal action for them to put it into the Constitution, which is way overdue at this point. So definitely time to get it done. But yeah, you know, I'm a product of who raised me. And I grew up in a, uh, well, let's say a multi-ideological house. So, you know, when that's who your background is, I would never disrespect my mother, you know, but at the same time, her and I, we're, we're an Italian family. Argument is communication. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's funny you share that with um, with Monica Guzman. She begins her book also with disagreements with her family. Her parents were also supporters. They were uh, Mexican immigrants and they're supporters of Trump, which shocked her. And she's learned to overcome that. Do you think that the the way to get beyond this is this with children or parents? Who needs to take the lead? Clearly, you have a good chemistry with your mom. Clearly, Monica Guzman had a good chemistry with her or has a good chemistry with her parents. But what, what advice would you give people who struggle a little bit more with their children or their parents? Well, it's up to someone to take the initiative. And in a vacuum, someone needs to do it. If it is a parent, great. And a lot of parents can also feel really awkward talking to their kids about you know, different things about politics or identity or anything else, because it's very also possible that their child doesn't want to talk to them about it. And so they're not going to force the issue. On the other hand, for kids and for young you know, adults and for teenagers, they can be ones who, you know, want to talk to their parents about it. At the same time, they don't know what the reaction is going to be or they think it's going to be a negative reaction. And so you end up having people kind of at a stasis or a standstill or just trying to avoid the topic to keep the peace. Right. And then other people. Simply put, they just recognize that each other has differences or they just don't care enough to talk about politics in the first place and they're not going to engage on it. I don't think you can just, you know, put everyone in the same box on it. We have to recognize the vastness that is the human experience in this. And to me, the vastness of the human experience 
means that if you're going to engage, at least start from a level of trying to, in good faith, find common ground. And at the same time, understand that if someone's not going to act in good faith, or maybe they are, but they are really still going to support an ideology or support issues or support candidates who very much want to keep your rights at bay and away from you, then you're going to have to stand up and you're going to have to do something about it. And, you know, ideally that's at the ballot box and it's by, you know, winning elections and it's by your advocacy and who you support, who do run for office. And so that's the sort of things where I always tell people, look, if you can't find someone who shares your values, then go grab a clipboard and go make yourself that person who's running for office. And if you can't, well, if you can find someone who shares your values, then grab that clipboard and go volunteer for them. Dennis, so we had uh, earlier this week, a uh, young woman, Rebecca Schiller. She has a new book out, a, a literary memoir about her own neurodivergency. It's a wonderful book, actually, and not similar to yours, but similarly transparent in terms of her life, A Thousand Ways to Pay Attention. Uh, your book is about your own life, about tor torching doubts, blazing trails, and igniting change. What did the writing of the book teach you about yourself who, who where did you end the book that you didn't begin with what did you learn <laughs> well what i did know going in and that very much was reinforced is that uh i am that I was born two weeks late and I've been late to things ever since <laughs> throughout my, my life. And so uh, I tend to be the writer who very much uh, needs the inspiration and then does a whole lot at once. And then it will then will take a while to come back to finish it. And so uh, I really needed that reinforcement of like, hey, How long did you it got deadlines. How late was them. it? <laughs> oh, some, I mean, you know, look, you know, I needed a taskmaster in order to get it finished. And I was very fortunate that Lindsay Bubar, who's one of my Merge sisters from uh, Merge California, she was able to step in and keep me on track because, um, yeah, that was definitely a struggle that I was having, especially during the you know early part of the pandemic when I was writing this. My office and I, we were overloaded with constituent uh, casework because we had an unprecedented volume of people filing unemployment claims who needed help, people needing help with the DMV, getting enrolled in Medicaid expansion, you know, finding food. It was just a lot of people, you know, and, you know, getting testing, for example, at the early part, it was, you know, we were just working around the clock on it. And so writing a book on that schedule, on the one hand, you're like, hey, you're staying at home all day, you know, you got this to do. It's like, well, yeah, and you're doing that at the end of a 12 or 14 hour day, you know, so, you know, it, it, it took a lot. But um, I think if I learned anything from that, it's how much I really value keeping other people's you know, a sense of privacy intact, where for me, I've made my life an open book. I put my stuff out there. I'm like, hey, it's about, you know, my life and, you know, my constituents know who I am. Just put everything in a book and tell some stories. And at the same time, I was also very, very, you know, sure to, you know, check with friends, check with other people, family and stuff who I mentioned in the book and just really want to make sure it's like, look, they're not public figures. I am. I'm not trying to put them in a limelight that they don't want to be in and making sure I was being respectful toward them. And I found how much I really value doing that in my storytelling. Certainly an open book, uh, Dan. It's, uh, the, the, the titles of your chapters are astonishingly transparent. Loser, <laughs> lifer, metalhead, hack, drunk, vagabond, whore, sellout, headliner. I mean, all, of course, written with an element of irony, but 
clearly you have an ambivalent relationship with yourself. Is that fair? <laughs> uh, very self-deprecating. I grew up on a very steady diet of George Carlin. Uh, I have no objection to making fun of myself any day of the week. And uh, I'm never short on material. We'll, we'll certainly say that enough to fill up book for sure. Have you had a lot of personal attacks? Um, I had a, another trans woman on the show last year. Paula Stone Williams, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She has a book out, As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy After I Transitioned. Um, she talks particularly about the evangelical attacks. Are there, in your experience, are there groups in America who are particularly intolerant, hateful towards the trans community? Well, of course. And then I defeated them at the ballot box in 2017 and then again in 2019 and then again in 2021, you know, just, yeah, of course they exist. I know that. And at the same time, when I was a reporter, uh, I was the news editor of the Montgomery County Sentinel. I had to cover two brutal murders of young black trans women um, in Montgomery County between 2015 and 2016. And so I know that there's one thing to have political attacks that I can just brush off and end up, you know, flipping the script on it and making it work for me by fundraising off of it and making them, you know, more or less sh showing them very much up front, you know, that, you know, attacking people is not a good idea. As I wrote about in the book, when uh, the Westboro Baptist Church protested my existence as a trans woman in the state legislature when they were standing outside the state capitol, uh, and my buddy Brandy Blythe from uh, the Metal Band Lamb of God ended up bleeding the counterparty where they had like about 200 people blowing kazoos and stuff at them for half an hour. That was pretty amazing. But we also raised $36,046 off of that in the run up to that protest. And that was enough to cover my first week of uh, TV ads for that election. But as a reporter, I had to sit with the family members and talk one on one on people who didn't have a chance to have, you know, to be able to flip the script on something. They didn't have a chance to be able to make light of something because they got killed and they got viciously murdered. One case, one young trans woman was stabbed so many times um, that her family had to dress her in a white gown that came all the way down to her ankles just to preserve the dignity of an open casket funeral. And her father was called, called me on the phone just weeping months, months afterward, saying, I miss my baby girl, I miss my baby girl. And I remember sitting, um, and her name was Kiana Blakeney. And I remember, the year before that, sitting with the aunt of Zelaziana um, over in Rockville and her showing me, you know, pictures of her daughter and or of, her, of her niece, you know, when she was dancing and, you know, having fun with makeup and telling me stories and everything. And they didn't get that opportunity. And we have to remember that when we talk about political attacks, yeah, that those are bad and those should not exist either. And when we talk about physical attacks within the trans community, it's fatal. And that we have to also recognize that people who flame the flame the the fans of that hatred in the first place, they might not be the ones who are pulling the trigger or putting the blade through someone, but they are still very much encouraging the dehumanization that leads to that in the first place. And there is repercussions for that. Some of those people seem to be doing quite well, unfortunately. Politically, this week, uh, J.D. Vance was won his primary. Um, one headline from Politico talks about how Peter Thiel bet big on J.D. Vance and won. Are you fearful that with people like J.D. Vance now perhaps elected to the Senate, things are going to get a lot nasty? No. 
Not at all. No. <laughs> There's look for number one. You know, Tim Ryan still exists. He can still win that general election. So if you don't want to see JD Vance in the U.S. Senate, then go donate or volunteer for Tim Ryan's campaign. That seems like a good idea. And number two, what are you going to do in the United States Senate that they haven't already tried doing at some point? Like they've already been awful in so many, so many, so many cases over the years. And the fact that we have a Democratic majority right now that's at least able to stop bad things from happening, even when we sometimes get very upset with our own members on it, it's a reminder that majorities matter. And, you know, we've been through this before. We have been through very awful, divisive times in American history. My Keep in mind, my district in the 13th district, Manassas, I represent the first, you know, the area of the first battlefield of the Civil War. And, you know, when that's part of your history, you understand that, you know, there have been very awful times in, you know, our country's history here that right now, the fact that, you know, we still have, you know, fair and free elections where we can still, you know, make change and we can have positive outcomes at the ballot box that's a very important thing because there's certainly a history of legacy of violence and hate and hurt you know other just terrible you know list of horrible things that have not only kept people closeted but they've gotten people killed over the years and i think that where we are right now of course i'm not afraid of a republican nominee from ohio for the states that for the u.s senate it's just like yeah you know he's one of you know he'd still be one of a hundred at the end of the day the, but the fact of the matter is it's a reminder that we need to win elections. If you don't like someone's ideology like that, then defeat them at the ballot box. Do you feel things might be changing? Uh, there was a, a Michigan House race this week in which um, an enjoy the rape MAGA candidate uh, lost. Um, interesting uh, local election. Um is there any evidence in your mind that you're seeing locally that people are beginning to rethink this hatred, particularly grounded in sexual identity? I don't know if there's a rethinking as much as there's the constant debate and, you know, just evolution of thought that goes, you know, and keep in mind in Virginia, politics is a pendulum. It swings, you know, one way to the other. And, you know, with one exception since the 1970s, Whichever party has won the White House has then lost the gubernatorial election the following year in Virginia. That's just how Virginia goes. And this past year was no exception to that. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, yeah, we're always going to have those conversations. And the fact that the people of the 13th district of Haymarket, Gainesville, Manassas Park, my lifelong home, Manassas, elected an out trans woman means that at least, you know, they are comfortable with the idea of keeping that conversation going in a positive way where. My constituents know if they want to talk to me, I show up, I go with dinner with them or I go to their homes or, you know, just we sit down and we talk together. And that's the thing about being a state representative. You don't have the luxury or the stupidity of being away from your constituents. You show up and you you live among them every single day and you just talk to them just like a normal person. And if you don't live in Manassas, um, then it's a now you can have at least a, a metaphorical dinner with with you uh, reading burn the page your new uh, your new memoir true story of torching doubts blazing trails and igniting change congratulations quite an achievement 300 pages uh, about your own uh, very unusual and successful both successful and perhaps less successful life you're very honest about that congratulations what else Danitzer, should people be reading in early may 2022 i mean, <laughs> i know you had um 
you had a, some book suggestions on, on L. Maybe you want to uh, tell our, our, our viewers about that. Yeah, sure. So I'm a huge Outlander fan. Uh, the read or listened to the entire uh, book series. Um, I think Davina Porter is an incredible narrator. Absolutely adore her. Uh, so I've watched all the shows, seen not just the main, the nine main books, and uh, Diana Gabaldon's ninth main novel was called Go Tell the Bees I Have Gone. Uh, so got through that one uh, pretty quick. Uh, even though it was 900 pages. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, that's big for me. How'd you have time to read, Dan? It's after everything else. Oh, oh the audio the audiobooks were a huge because oh. I'm on the road. I'm on the road so much. I love those audiobooks. But I certainly did read, you know, a good fair share of the uh, the novellas and the uh, short stories as well, which were very fun. So uh, not only do we need to burn the page, we need to burn the audiobook. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I actually recorded my own audiobook from that too. So you can uh, the, the book burn the page is available in ebook, an audiobook, as well as uh, hard uh, hard copy too. So yeah, feel free to pick it up however you like. If you like the big guys, that's an option for you. If you like your independent sellers, we certainly have that too. And you're on the road. Uh, you're in Seattle today. How long more yeah. are you on the road to promote? This uh, I, go, I go home to Manassas tomorrow. I fly back into Dallas. Yeah, I bet so you'll be thrilled to be home back to Manassas. Yes, I will so be. Finally. Uh, 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 Danica Rome, the author of Burn the Page. Uh, Danica, in, uh, on, on May 4th, 2022, who, who's in control? Who's running the show these days, Danica? You're, you're a politician. You understand this better than most. Well, you're, my constituents run my show. They're the ones who set my legislative agenda, and then I go execute it. 